welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Well, welcome to this episode of Tech Law Talks. Thanks very much for joining. Uh, my name is Hagen Rook. I'm a financial regulatory and fintech lawyer based in Singapore, very immersed in all things payment services, digital assets and crypto. Been out here for a little while, cut my teeth in the London market, but uh, firmly immersed here. I'm joined today by my fabulous colleague, Soham Panchamir, based in, in Dubai. Soham, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Soham Panchmir. I'm an associate in the Dubai office. I do everything Hagen does, just not as well. I'm his unendorsed protege that he's just not come around to fully accepting yet. <laughs> That's very, very kind of you. Um, I think also very understated, to be honest, because uh, Soham has actually been making waves in the UAE market as uh, probably now, not exaggerated, one of the best known Web3 lawyers uh, in, in the market. And I, I say that not only for self-promotional purposes. Uh, I think it's it's genuinely true. And uh, the industry loves him. Yeah, yeah, they, they love me because um, I, I identify as a DGEN who works in corporate law. It's, it's a lot to wrap your head around, but it's the only way to be a DGEN and also, you know, put food on the table. Hagen, on the other hand, has this reputation in Singapore of being the go-to lawyer for Web3. I briefly flirted with the idea of trying to move to the Singapore office and having done a couple of trips there and seen Hagen's client base and his network and reach, I kind of just realized there's no point. He's already stitched up the entire market. So anyway, enough about telling you how amazing Hagen is. You can find that out by emailing him. Wanted to get started by talking today about our topic, which is key takeaways from Token 2049. So for those who don't know, Token 2049 is, some would argue, one of the biggest events in the crypto industry that happens yearly, though I believe they're changing it to biannual now. Is that correct, Hagen? That may be correct. I think they're planning a token 2049 in, in Dubai as well, right? Yes. Funny you should mention that. I'm glad you did. So for anybody who loves token 2049, come on over because I don't want to get on another plane. But I did get on a plane to go to Singapore to spend some time with this amazing gentleman and many, many of our clients there uh, and people who will soon become them. And we took one afternoon where we both put on our little badges and we went and did a walk around the conference room floor and got to talking with all the various companies that had showed up there. And so the theme of today's podcast is to just talk about what we noticed. And Hagen has been to many other token conferences in the past and to kind of just draw a little bit of a comparison on what we're seeing now versus what we saw then and also perhaps hopefully shed some light on the regulatory position as it develops in the way we're seeing the industry move forward. So I guess I'll start by asking you this, Hagen, what was your biggest observation uh, while we did that lovely little promenade in that very, very cold conference room? Well, I thought that essentially the place was teeming. There was a sense of exuberance and a sense of positivity. The year before, in 2022, as I understand, it was very similar. I wasn't actually there because I was with you in Dubai, you might remember, True. for other reasons. Yes. But 
Yeah, I mean, at the time, I think in 2022, the exuberance stemmed partly from the fact that we were just coming out of COVID restrictions. And it was one of the first big events that was, you know, held without you know people having to wear face masks and, and you know, adhering to various other restrictions. And so that kind of contributed to the positivity then. It was also, I think, pre-FTX. And so whilst the market had taken a hit from Three Arrows Capital, we weren't yet in, in the doldrums that ensued once the, the FTX scandal hit. So last week was, uh, sorry, last year rather was, you know, very, very positive as a result. I was hoping for similar positivity uh, this year and I wasn't disappointed. I thought that, you know, there was a real buzz and, and, and people were, you know, clearly excited to be there. And I thought it was very interesting milling around the stores and seeing, you know, how many people had come from all parts of the world, not all of them necessarily with uh, an interest in Singapore or Asia specifically, but a lot of them just congregating there, you know, from the US, from various parts of Europe, uh, quite a few Eastern European players, quite a few mainland Chinese founded outfits, I guess, but not not headquartered or based. And yeah, I, I just what I take with me, I think, first and foremost, was the positivity. I don't know whether you share that. I mean, I, I love the positivity of walking around from stall to stall and hearing you go like, oh, we did a bit of advice work for them. Oh, that's a client. Oh, yeah, I know them. And I'm just like, great, cool. Let's go talk to them. <laughs> I had one, I had exactly one of my own clients who had a stall there. And I was like, this one's mine. <laughs> this one is mine. Just just pointing that out. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, there was a lot of exuberance and positivity in a sense, I so I did a trip to Singapore earlier in the year. That was uh, my big return to Singapore a while back. And Hagen and I, you and I did this roadshow where we went and spoke to a whole bunch of people in the industry. And at the time, sort of the feedback I felt as in a, in a thematic sense was it was still a little down post FTX and, you know, in, enthusiasm wise, which is so different from the general vibe and ethos right now within the Web3 community, at least in Dubai, where even post FTX, while everybody was using it as a talking point, it didn't really seem to dampen much of the enthusiasm too much until, of course, all the funding started drying up for a few months. That really put a stopper on things. But I will agree that walking around Token, meeting all the people there, everybody milling about, everybody talking, glad-handing, handshaking everywhere, it kind of drove home that, oh, we're not, we're not quite dead yet. Uh, one would think, reading all the headlines for the, the beginning of this year, that FTX collapsing seemed to be the end of the industry, and it, it seemed to be anything but that. And very interestingly, I found that, and I don't know if you agree with this, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, that in the wake of the whole FTX collapse, there has been this almost shift in the industry because the FTX collapse seemed to have been like the trigger point for so many disparate events popping up around the world. You know, regulators getting more serious, requirements becoming more stringent everywhere where these companies tend to go, that we started to see more sophisticated players in terms of sophistication when it comes to the regulatory impact of their product offering. And that is where I think where it became interesting because we kept seeing a lot of infrastructure players mm -hmm. in many, many of these stalls as compared to before where I think we would see more budding exchanges, budding broker dealers, you know, marketplaces and the like, who were still there, 
but in my view, not as much as in years past. There was more bridging softwares and side chains and the like. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. I think it's a sign of maturity in the market. A lot of infrastructure providers, L1s, interoperability platforms, Mm -hmm. ZK roll-up. That seemed to be a very big theme this year. I've been hearing about it for a while, but ZK roll-up seems to be what everybody's really trying to achieve now. Absolutely. I think it's all about achieving scalability on some of the more popular blockchains like, like Ethereum. And uh, effectively, you know, what that means is sort of rolling up some of the, the transactional activity onto a layer that sits on top of the, the base blockchain, which we call the L1. And so when you create that type of solution, it, it sort of sits at the second layer, which we call L2. And the idea is to sort of effectively siphon off some of the the transactional activity and uh, improve the the, the, the the throughput and the the sort of the scalability of the transactions that occur on on the chain. And then typically you'd have another application that that is sort of built on top of that second layer, which is then sort of the L3 application. And that would be, you know, your, your, your trading platform or... You could, you could, I mean, you could even have an L4, right, which would be some kind of aggregator that actually feeds off those various user interfaces as well. Yeah. Hilariously, we actually did speak to one of them, didn't we? FCA-regulated people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I thought that was so fascinating. It's like, you know it's gotten serious when they've started benchmarking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see benchmark, benchmark service providers. I mean, again, the sign of institutionalization very very similar to the type of benchmark administrators that uh, we we know sort of in the tradfi markets now providing various indices for for crypto you know for individual crypto tokens as well as bar- baskets of of crypto and sort of various different types of composed in index so so what's interesting is so for those listening who perhaps are not builders well we aren't either but we've just spoken to enough that some stuff has sort of gone in by osmosis so i apologize if i'm wildly inaccurate on some of this hagen will correct me but the way infrastructure plays sidechain zk roll zk rollups pure american about it work is uh that basically in the interaction between these various layers that hagen had described what these guys are doing is that they're creating interoperable technologies and interfaces that allows transaction speeds to improve. Because the way a lot of the blockchain works is the more transaction volume it is, the faster the transactions occur and the cheaper they are to achieve. By using these sort of roll-ups, sidechains, bridges, and the like, you gain the benefit of in a simplistic sense, bundling up these transactions so that they move faster and cheaper all at one go. It's a lot more complicated than that, and I'm really not the person to be describing this. But uh, in essence, that's sort of how you can think about it. So it's like two buildings and the kinds of companies that create the staircases or lifts that connect the two floors. Those were the guys that we were seeing more and more at the conference. And interestingly, I think it's quite telling because generally speaking, those kinds of players are outside of regulation because in the, in, in the most simplistic sense, they are the ones who provide services to exchanges, to layer ones, to layer twos, 
they they provide services that allows transactions to occur more smoothly on those platforms. So any sort of regulatory burden or requirements is shifted onto the person that's purchasing these services rather than sitting with the service providers themselves. So now Hagen's going to come in and, and explain how everything I said was wildly inaccurate. No, completely accurate. I mean, I think it's a good point and uh, a nice segue to, I guess, a an actual regulatory topic because this is the Tech Law Talks podcast after all. So maybe we should talk about the law a little bit. So it's interesting to think about some of the legal and regulatory issues that are relevant to these L2s, ZK Rolocks, for example, but also L1s. As you say, you know, one threshold consideration is regulation. Do they need to comply with it? Some of these tech service providers may have, you know, native tokens that in some way support their network or their their solution. And so if they have built some form of tokenomics into the way that their solution works, then, you know, you always have to consider crypto regulation, VASP type regulation. Although in most cases, I think it's fair to say that you know, the, any token that is native to an L1 will essentially be, you know, a, a gas token or some kind of token that can be used as part of a validation or staking process, but doesn't actually implicate the the L1 developers in, you know, regulated activities. And, you know, I think you make a good point, which is that what regulated activities are conducted on this infrastructure at a higher level, are typically conducted at that higher level, you know, at the, say, the the L3 level, for example, by anyone who is building a solution that actually allows for the trading of, of crypto, etc., you know, on, on top of that infrastructure. So in, in places like Singapore, you know, we, we have a very recognized concept under the, the local crypto regulatory framework, which is that of the exempt or excluded technology service provider. So if you're a technology service provider and you know all you're doing is providing some kind of technology layer that enables others to you know build something on top of that layer or kind of enables some form of data connectivity and you can always point to somebody else who is actually conducting the regulated activity then you know it's, it's quite a recognized principle that that you yourself don't have to be subject to regulation. You don't need a license, etc. I was in in New York last week, and I had this conversation with one of our clients there, and they said, "Well, if only the U.S. regulatory framework were as clear as this, because you know we have um, various concepts here that that just do not have a clear carve out for technology solutions. And so, even though we see ourselves as a technology service provider, we're always grappling with that." murky lack of clarity um yeah. but anyway in singapore we have the clarity well in ua we also have clarity and i would argue we have at the very least we have enough clarity to get started unlike singapore which has a singular regulator in the monetary authority of singapore which i maintain remains eminently sensible in the uae we have five regulators but i'm not going to bore you with the spiel that hagen has heard about 16 times 16 <laughs> times to be accurate it's good you should uh, do it you should do the spiel 
ah, no, because that'll take up the rest of this episode. <laughs> we won't actually get to talk about the technology service providers. But yeah. uh, essentially, looking at it from the, the two regulators worth considering are the FSRA, which is the regulator in the Abu Dhabi global market, which is the free zone in uh, financial free zone in Abu Dhabi, and VARA, the Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority, which is the regulator in Dubai. Within VARA's general regulations and its main rule book, they have a specific section where they essentially do a similar kind of allowance that Hagen just described for Singapore, where if you're a technology service provider, technically no regulations apply to you, and you can then choose to voluntarily register yourself with the regulator as an unregulated entity in a sense. I think that in a way is just purely for branding. Within the FSRA framework, you could try and put yourself in as a designated non-financial business or profession of some sort, if you can potentially fit into that categorization. And the whole purpose of doing that is because you are then identified as a provider of services for entities that are otherwise regulated. And so it gives you, from a branding and marketing and maybe special designation perspective, it gives you that, that little badge of honor without you having to go through the entire route of trying to get a regulatory permission or license of some sort. So that's something that is now available in both jurisdictions. And ultimately, if you're a technology service provider in this jurisdiction, I think what's going to be very interesting is the kind of work that you do and how it impacts the the final end user. Because I think it's all well and good for someone to come forward and say, I'm just a I'm just a bridge, I'm just a service provider. But if I as a user am told that I'm accessing platform A, but platform A has a wallet that's provided by Hagen Rook Incorporated, and Hagen Rook Incorporated is just purely a technology services provider by its own identification, at the end of the day, there's murky water over there if I as a user believe my wallet is being secured by Hagen Rook Incorporated instead of the platform. And I think what was very interesting for me at Token was there seemed to be a very clear understanding of that. And a lot of these technology service providers fully understood that they do very much have to remain in the shadows. And that being B2B genuinely means the end user shouldn't even know that they have interacted with services provided by these providers. And that to me was the the real sign of the maturity in the market, because I don't think that necessarily would have been the case even three, two or three years ago, because at that point, it seemed everybody just wanted to launch a token. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a few fantastic points I'd like to pick up on there. I think it's by and large true that most tech service providers that operate as pure infrastructure service providers and, and, and are unregulated essentially pursue a type of B2B model where if there is some interaction with an end consumer or end user, that end consumer or end user uses that infrastructure typically on a sort of whitelisted basis. So they won't necessarily know that uh, the, the tech service provider is providing that tech essentially on the back end. And I think generally you're right that the, the closer you get to the end user, the more you have to be concerned about some regulatory themes, you know, including AML, KYC related things and, and, and sanctions related things, which, you know, incidentally are, I think, alongside licensing uh, and perimeter issues, probably the two topics that we tend to advise tech service providers on the most. 
another thing I'd like to pick up on is sort of that optionality in the UAE of being able to apply for a license as a pure tech service provider, even though you don't strictly need to get a license if you don't want to. Interesting thing is, it's not a license, it's more like a voluntary registration. And in okay. the UAE, they make that distinction very much. If something's a registration, it's kind of outside of a regulatory licensing process. But if they specifically oh, okay. use the word license in the context of regulators, it's the long drawn out process that, frankly, you've become very, very familiar with more so than me at this point. Ah, got it, got it. So that registration is, is swifter then? And, and yeah, yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, it's meant to be swifter. What I do know is that uh, at least with VARA, where the registration is very explicitly mentioned, I don't think it's just been a priority for them because they've got so much undergoing right now. I mean, the regulators a year old, their rule books are less than a year old. They have hundreds of applications currently in front of them. So I think when it comes to these kinds of voluntary registrations and such, that's very much further down the line. It's kind of like a fringe ecosystem point. They've still got to build the core of the ecosystem for now. So there's provision for it in the rule books, and I think it's something we'll see further down the line. But it's definitely something worth exploring for any kind of company that is perhaps trying to make some kind of institutional play, is trying to court those kinds of licensed players in their own right, to the extent they feel that that badge of honor can help give them an edge. I mean, I'm not on the commercial side of these things, so I, I can't predict it. I can only speak off it from the perspective of other regulated players who, by and large, do see getting these licensing approvals in different parts of the world as badges of honor that they're collecting. Mm. No, this is precisely the point that I find super interesting and I wanted to pick up on, because if you can get some form of regulatory seal of approval, that's worth a lot in a world where you know, investors, potential collaborators, industry peers and users are, are starting to become a lot more discerning um, yeah. and quizzical about, you know, whether or not you are subject to some form of oversight. And if you're not, then, you know, that can be a real downside. So as you say, if you're not subject to some form of registration, you may not be eligible to be used as a service provider to, you know, licensed entities or, you know, other kind of trading platforms that would otherwise use you. I think a great example there is, you know, non-custodial wallets. And you know, this is a sort of a struggle that that part of the industry has been going through yeah. for, for quite some time now. Obviously, there's this whole battle between the sort of the non-custodial solutions and then the actual true custodians. And I think on the regulatory front, that the problem that the non-custodial solutions are experiencing is that because they're not subject to regulation, there seems to be this, this bias that regulators have where regulators are saying, well, we want trading platforms and trading desks, etc., to use regulated custodians. Not necessarily in all, in all jurisdictions, but that seems to be tendentially sort of part, you know, a, a trend, at least in some locations. And, you know, if, if non-custodial solutions can get some form of regulation, regulatory recognition that makes them eligible uh, to, to play that game and participate in the regulated space, you know, alongside the centralized custodians, then... Yeah, no, think. let's just take that thread a little further because cause I'm trying to, like, think it through, right? One of the main things with wanting to use a regulated 
for bad lack of a centralized custodian is they have to get the insurances, they have to get the tech protections, all the policies and procedures, the compliance officer, the MLRO, um, all those various and wonderful requirements that regulators require. A non-custodial solution to me escapes regulation for that fundamental simplistic reason that their position is they're not telling anybody that they're taking their money and will safe keep it for them. They're just saying, here's a solution. You control it. We don't. We can't get into it yep. for you. If you lose your seed phrase, God help you, because then it's gone. And yep. you, you take that risk upon yourself when you, when you take that non-custodial solution option. And so I kind of see it from a regulator's perspective of like, well, then on what basis are you regulating these guys? Because, you know, they're not actually safekeeping anything. So I think it becomes a matter of really paying attention to the service offering. Because I think it's very easy to say this is a non-custodial solution. And then you probe a little further and say, yeah, but what if I lose my seed phrase? Can you help me? Well, no. But what if I really, really wrote you a lot of angry emails and begged? Okay, then maybe at the back end, we can do some admin stuff to try and get in. Ah, well, then it's not really non-custodial anymore, is it? <laughs> yeah, and so absolutely. That dichotomy yeah. is something that I don't know if a regulator will necessarily be as robust to explore it to that deep level yet. Maybe one day. Mm -hmm. But I think anybody yeah, hawking a non-custodial solution needs to be very aware of that. That they may think they're non-custodial, but they may not be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think any suggestion that a non-custodial solution can or should be regulated also kind of needs to be probed from from, from the angle that, that you allude to, which is, well, you know, it's just a tech layer that's used by a trading platform. It's not actually a separate entity with its own creditworthiness, its own balance sheet that you're going to rely on to hold assets. And, you know, I think the way the regulatory trend is going, it actually is quite hard for non-custodial players because, you know, I'll speak of the UAE, as a broker dealer or as an exchange, you're actually incentivized to use a regulated custodian. Your capital requirements mm -hmm. increase to nearly double if you use a non-custodian wallet option or, or custodial solutions provider. So in that case, I just wonder if, even if they get that kind of a registration approval of some sort, is that actually going to help them be competitive in a market where now regulated players are being incentivized to use other regulated players? And how do you find a place for that in the market? Mm. Do you realize we've been chatting away for yeah. half an hour now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know it, it goes by very quickly. I think, I mean, we could obviously delve into the, into the, the rabbit hole that is tech solutions and, you know, company solutions for, for hours on end. I mean, maybe to segue back to... Yes, to the jumping off point nine, that we left far you know, behind. Non, exactly. Well, it is. it does all tie together and it kind of segues back quite neatly in a sense because you, you remember we, we, we spent a fair bit of time speaking to uh, one particular kind of non-custodial wallet that, that had a sort of uh -huh. institutional arm that it was, uh, that it was looking to promote there yeah. that is otherwise very well known as sort of every every the, the sort of common yep. man on the streets yep. web three wallet essentially and that was quite quite interesting to see that they're they're looking to market themselves again to an institutional audience but yeah the the, the custodians and non-custodial solutions were certainly putting in a show there too do you have any other thoughts on any other thoughts on what better we saw snacks. at token 2049 <laughs> it wasn't too bad. They did have free drinks. I did. I did quite enjoy like that. that. And that promenade that we stood on 
while we talked about nonsense for for a little bit as we took a break that was that was the best part i think but yeah definitely other than that better snacks <laughs> yeah and and as usual with with token 2049 i mean you know a lot of What's fun about that week is all the stuff that oh, happens the on the sidelines. I, I, sort of the launches, the after parties. Ending up in Malaysia accidentally. Not that that happened to me. <laughs> yeah, you never told me the full story there. That's, uh, I think that's, that's it, That's quite huh? curious. Do you have anything else that stood out? I think, I think we've hit half hour mark, so... Yeah. Maybe that's a wrap for this one. Um, but it's been oh, this just feels like and, this uh, just feels like all the times I keep bothering you in your office whenever I'm in town. <laughs> this is just a standard conversation recorded for the benefit of millions of people. I mean, I think I love I love your ambition that you think a million people are going to listen to this. <laughs> got to think gotta big. Be ambitious. Think, big. think big. See, this is why I'm the protege and he's the leader. So hopefully we'll get to do one of these <laughs> again right. pretty soon. And next time we'll, we'll, we'll pick something even more invigorating than technology solutions. Thanks, Hagen. Fantastic. Thanks, Sam. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and ReadSmith.com. And our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.